You know, today is such a special day as all across our nation, hundreds of millions of people will be getting together at parties and festivities, celebrating the 4th of July, celebrating Independence Day here in our country. When you think back to July the 4th of 1776, that's the day that we associate with our Independence Day here in America. But when you think about it, there's actually some things that you may not know about the 4th of July. Back in 1776, it actually wasn't on July the 4th that they voted to declare independence from Great Britain. No, the Continental Congress took that vote on July the 2nd of 1776 to declare our independence. And it wasn't on the 4th of July that, the, that our forefathers signed the Declaration of Independence. That wouldn't start happening until August the 2nd of 1776. And the last person wouldn't sign it until November the 4th of 1776. Now, the reason why we celebrate July the 4th as our Independence Day is that is the day that they officially took the vote to adopt the Declaration of Independence as our official document to state to the world that we are a free nation. That was the day that they took the vote and the majority of the colonies said, we're going to make this the official document. So July the 4th became the day that we celebrate as our Independence Day because that's when the Declaration of Independence was adopted. Now, it took them until August the 2nd to actually sign their names to it because it took them that long, that many weeks, to be able to draft up a version of the Declaration in clear and legible enough handwriting that it could actually be read. Apparently, Thomas Jefferson's handwriting was not all that great. It was just a bunch of chicken scratch, and I'm imagining the King George over in England getting this illegible document and trying to figure out what in the world these 13 colonies wanted to tell him. No, they took the time to get it all written down legibly so that they could begin to sign it in August. And over time, it was Thomas Jefferson and his committee that did most of the work writing this document, and they went through so many different versions of it, editing it and revising it and copying things down and reworking all the language. They wanted to make sure that it was all just right being able to say the things that they wanted to say to the world. In the end, we got the document that we know today. And if you go back and you read all the way through the Declaration of Independence, you see all the grievances that they listed out against the King of England, the ways that they felt they had been mistreated, the ways that they had been misrepresented or underrepresented, and the reasons why they felt like this was the time to be able to proclaim their God-given right to liberty and to become a free and independent nation. Whenever you go back and you read the history of it, through all of the changes and the edits and the revisions, there was one section of this Declaration of Independence that never really changed in its substance. And that's the part that you and I are probably most familiar with today. Early on in the Declaration where it says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It was these three ideals, these three values, that our forefathers laid out in this Declaration of Independence that would continue to shape and lead our nation from our very foundation. It was these three values that we have allowed to continue to shape us and lead us for nearly 250 years now. These three values that we have lifted up and said, this is who we are as a country. Now, there's no doubt that when you look back upon our history, there are many times 
where we have failed to live up to those values. There are many times where we have fallen short of these ideals that we have claimed for ourselves. But there's also no doubt that when we have been at our best as a country, it's because we have been a place that has promoted life for all people. A place that has provided freedom and liberty for all. When we have been at our best, we have provided opportunities for everybody to pursue happiness. When you look back to these three values that have guided our nation, we recognize that they didn't begin with the Declaration of Independence. These values weren't created by our founding fathers. These are values that go all the way back to our faith in Christ. You know, our founding fathers lined out these values at the very beginning of our nation to help set a foundation that would continue to shape us and guide us and lead us for nearly 250 years. And in very much the same way in our scripture passage this morning, we see Jesus beginning to line out the values that would shape and guide his ministry and that continue to shape and guide us as followers of Christ for nearly 2,000 years. When you go back and you read Luke chapter 4, we see that this statement, that this scripture, is the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry here on earth. It was the first time that Jesus would appear publicly as an adult, and from this point on, he would begin his three years of ministry while he was alive here on earth. And it was here in this passage that it tells us that Jesus had gone back to his hometown of Nazareth, and he was there in the synagogue for worship, as was his custom. Apparently that was normal for Jesus to be in the synagogue with his family of faith coming to worship. When he came that day, it was his turn to read the scripture. He stood up to read and the attendant handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now sometimes I think we have this image in our head that the scroll just kind of fell open and Jesus started to read wherever it fell open to. Or maybe that was the assigned reading that Jesus had been given that day. But I think Luke makes it clear to us that Jesus was very intentional about the scripture that he chose to read. Jesus opened it up and he found the place in the prophet Isaiah. And in fact, he actually read from two different places in Isaiah. He read from Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6, and from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. And there Jesus would begin to line out the values that would shape and guide his public ministry for the next three years and the values that have continued to shape and guide us as followers of Christ. Jesus said that he came to proclaim good news to the poor, to be able to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was stating from the very beginning of his ministry, just as our founding fathers stated from the very beginning of our nation, that he came so that all people may, might have life through the good news of God's grace. That we might be able to find liberty for those who are oppressed. That we might all be able to pursue happiness through the gift of God's grace and our faith in Christ. This morning on this 4th of July Sunday, I want us to look at these three values that are outlined in our Declaration of Independence. The values that ultimately come from our faith in Christ and to look at how the lens of our faith leads us on this 4th of July to find new ways to live out these values of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Because we recognize that just as our founding fathers said, we have all been given certain unalienable rights, 
that among these are first, life. What does it mean to have life through the lens of our faith? I think back to John chapter 10. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking to his followers and he says to them, The thief came only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. It's not just any life that we have been given. We have been given the opportunity for an abundant life because of our relationship with Christ. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is reading from Isaiah, and he says that he came to proclaim release to the captives, the word that's used for release, the Greek word for release, is used several other times in the New Testament. But every other time that word is used in the New Testament, it is always in relation to the forgiveness of sins. Oftentimes when you and I think about proclaiming release to the captives, I think our minds automatically go to prison. We think of people behind bars, people in jail. But I think Jesus had a much bigger idea of freedom, a much bigger idea of proclaiming release to captives. It wasn't just about a physical freedom. It was about spiritual and emotional and mental. It was about economic and addiction Anything that holds us back in bondage from experiencing the abundant life that Christ wants for us, Christ came to set us free from all of that so that we could experience the abundant life. We have been given an opportunity for life. And when we come to experience that abundant life in Christ, it changes our perspective on the world. It leads us to want to help others experience that life as well. Because what we find is that life leads to more life. You know, recently, a couple of weeks ago, I was watching the U.S. Open golf tournament. Any of you who know me know that this probably isn't a surprise to you. I love the game of golf and love watching golf tournaments. I was watching the U.S. Open, and uh, there were some great storylines that came out of the tournament this year, but, but one of them that caught my attention was about a young golfer that I hadn't heard about before, a guy by the name of Hayden Springer. Turned out that Hayden and his wife, Emma, met while they were in school at Texas Tech University. Both of them went there on golf scholarships. They started dating. They fell in love. Eventually, Hayden would transfer and go to TCU, and there, his senior year in college, he won the Big 12 Golf Championship. Well, after college was over, Hayden and Emma got married, and they were anxious to be able to pursue their dreams for life, and part of their dreams included starting a family. Hayden wanted to make it on the PGA Tour, wanted to try to play professional golf, and so he started working and, and trying to go to all these different Monday qualifier tournaments, trying to qualify for the big tournaments where he could actually make a living playing golf. Well, he was going around doing all this, and Hayden and Emma got married, and, and they did have this dream of starting a family together. It was last year, early of last year, that Hayden and Emma got the exciting news that they were pregnant with their first child. Of course, we remember 2020, how everything changed on a dime when a global pandemic hit. And suddenly this journey of pregnancy that they were expecting took a sharp turn. Emma found herself having to go to her doctor's appointments alone. Hayden wasn't allowed to go with her because of COVID. It wasn't what they were expecting, but they were still excited for what lie ahead. Emma was in the doctor's office last summer and she was there and they were taking all of her measurements and doing the ultrasounds and making sure everything was okay. And they saw something that didn't look quite right. 
They brought her back for some more tests and images and measurements. And Emma was sitting alone in the doctor's office one day last summer when she got the news that her baby had trisomy 18. Trisomy 18 is a rare genetic condition where the baby has a copy of all or at least part of chromosome 18. It causes some serious heart conditions for the child. Half of the babies that are diagnosed with trisomy 18 won't ever make it out of the womb. Those that do, well, their life expectancy is anywhere between two days, maybe up to two weeks. Their world, their dreams were turned upside down in just a moment. There would be no baby showers with people buying gifts for them, preparing for a baby. There would be no preparations of a nursery at home. They didn't even go buy a car seat because they knew this baby wouldn't be coming home with them. It was September 30th of last year that Hayden and Emma went into the hospital to deliver this baby. It went late into the night and it was early in the morning on October the 1st that the baby was finally delivered by C-section. The doctors and nurses were there in the room with them, but they weren't planning any medical intervention. They knew there was no point to that. They didn't even have an oxygen mask in the room. No, when the baby was delivered, they simply laid her up on Emma's chest so that for whatever amount of time she had on earth, she would be there in her mother's arm. Hayden and Emma were there and they decided to name this little girl Sage. They sat there with Sage in Emma's arms and, and they watched and they listened as slowly Sage took one little small raspy breath and then she took another and then another. Hayden and Emma just looked at each other with tears in their eyes as they watched this miracle of life in their arms, this gift of life that God had given to them. Pretty soon an hour went by, and then a day went by, and still with no medical intervention, Sage was breathing on her own. It was after a couple of days that finally the doctors came into them and they said, you're actually free to go home. They were so excited, they were stunned, they never dreamed that that was going to be possible after the news that they had received. And now all of a sudden what usually takes nine months to prepare for a baby arriving at home, they had six hours to get everything ready. Their family started running to the store to buy diapers and wipes and a car seat and all the things that you need, started to get the home ready for them. Well, they got home when they were making all the physical preparations and they realized that they had so much else to prepare for. They didn't know anything about how to care for a trisomy 18 baby. They had never been talked to about this because no, nobody ever believed that this was going to be possible. They didn't know what resources were out there. They didn't know who to talk to. They didn't know what support groups were available. They started to do their research and look things up and what they found is that down in Austin, Texas at the Dell Children's Medical Center, it's one of the few hospitals where the doctors there will actually perform the heart surgery that's needed for a trisomy 18 baby. They got in touch with the doctors down there. They told them their story about Sage. And the doctors visited with them and they said that they would actually be willing to perform the surgery. But they needed Sage to grow a little bit bigger and stronger before they'd be willing to do it. Well, during this time, Emma started to go back to work. She was working night shift as a nurse at a hospital. Meanwhile, she wanted Hayden to continue to pursue his dreams of making it on the PGA Tour. 
She was encouraging him to get back out and start practicing and playing again. They were both getting into their full life with her working the grave, graveyard shift as a nurse, him trying to go to all these different tournaments around the country, all the while trying to take care of this young baby that, that they knew that life could be taken away at any moment. It was one day in late December of last year that Hayden was out on the golf course practicing and Emma brought Sage up to come and see him and they were going to bring him a change of clothes so he could get ready for a workout. And while they were there, Sage started to cry and they could not get her to stop. They knew something was wrong. They called their doctors and they knew they had to get down to Austin just as fast as they could. They got down there to the children's hospital and the doctors immediately started making preparations for surgery. At the very end of December of this last year, they took her in for surgery. And after 15 hours in the surgery room and in recovery, Sage made it through her heart surgery. It was a 70-day stay in the hospital before they finally got the news that they were cleared to go home. Since that time, Hayden and Emma said that they've started to find themselves dreaming about what life will be like five years from now. 10 years from now, 20 years from now with Sage. And they always have to stop and remind themselves that one small infection, one thing that goes wrong, and it could all be taken away. But they have experienced the gift of life. They have experienced a miracle with Sage. And it has changed their perspective on life and on the world around them. Hayden talked about the fact that he used to wanted to play professional golf because he loved the game of golf. He thought it would be a great way to make a living for his family. He enjoyed playing. But he said since having Sage, it's changed his reason for wanting to make it on the PGA Tour. Having gone through what they went through coming home from the hospital, not having any resources, any knowledge, any idea of what to do to take care of a trisomy 18 baby, it led them to start a foundation they started this foundation with part of the proceeds from the foundation going to support medical research for Trisomy 18, helping to make advancements in science and medicine so that others might have more opportunities at life as well. But the other part of it is going to be used to, to take the proceeds to be used to create more resources and information and support groups for parents just like them so that nobody has to feel alone in this journey. So that others like them who get the news that their baby is going home with trisomy 18 will know where to go, who to turn to, and where they can get help. And Hayden said that he knows that at this point, if he were to make it onto the PGA Tour, it would provide an opportunity to expand his platform so that they can continue to grow this foundation and do more to bless life. It used to be that his reason for wanting to play professional golf was because he would really enjoy it and it would make a great life for him. But now, his reason is because he wants to help provide life for others, more opportunities for others. That's what happens when we experience the gift, the miracle of life, the abundant life that Christ came to bring us. Life leads to more life. When we have experienced that gift, it leads us to want to help others find it as well. Christ came that we might have that abundant life so that we could be set free from all that would hold us in bondage so that we might be able to grow in a relationship with God. We have been given the right to life, but second, we've been given the right to liberty. 
On this 4th of July, we remember what it means to be free, to have liberty. It was Jesus who came in Luke chapter 4 that he said there that he came to set at liberty those who were oppressed. And that's exactly how our founding fathers felt, that they were oppressed. They looked at the ways that they had been mistreated, the ways that they had been underrepresented or completely misrepresented. They looked at all the things that were unfair that had happened to them. And they decided that that was the moment to be able to declare their God-given right for liberty, for freedom. And so they declared their independence. When Jesus talked about setting at liberty those who were oppressed, he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And most scholars look back at this and we believe that this section of Isaiah was actually written during the Babylonian exile. A time when the people of Israel had been taken away in captivity to be able to, and they, had, they were forced to go to a foreign land. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. And now they found themselves living in a completely different place. It was at this time that the authors were writing, looking for liberty for those who were oppressed. They wanted somebody who would come and set them free so that they could return back to their promised land, rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem. Well, 500 years later was when Jesus was reading this scroll. And when Jesus was reading from the prophet Isaiah, there were still many who were looking for freedom. You see, it was Cyrus of Persia who did come and set the people free. They were allowed to return back home. They did rebuild the temple. But by the time of Jesus, Israel was still not a free and independent nation. It was now the Romans who had come and conquered that area. They were living under Roman occupation. And there were many of Jesus' followers, people who probably would have been there listening to Jesus that day in the synagogue, who were looking for a Messiah that would come and raise up an army and overthrow the Romans and restore the nation of Israel as a free and independent nation. Many of Jesus' followers looked to him to be that kind of Messiah. But when Jesus said that he was coming to bring liberation, he had something very different, something much deeper in mind. It wasn't just a political freedom that gives me the right to do whatever I want to do. It was a freedom that sets us free by the gift of God's grace to be the people that God wants us to be. It's a freedom that allows us to use that gift of liberty so that we can be a blessing in the world around us. Freedom doesn't come freely. It requires sacrifice. It requires people who are willing to look beyond themselves to see the good of all. That's the freedom that we experience through our faith in Christ. If you've been around St. Luke's for a while, you may remember Bill and Grace Wildy. Bill and Gracie were such wonderful members of our family of faith. Both of them lived well into their 90s. Both of them are now in the kingdom of heaven. Bill and Gracie were such fun, loving people. They loved their church family so much. They were here in worship every single Sunday until a point came where they got later on into life and physically they just weren't able to get out as much. They weren't able to come and be here in worship. But they made the commitment that every Sunday they were going to be watching worship on TV. And they were very committed that whenever it came time for worship on a Sunday morning, that they would sit down together and, and they would be in a spirit of worship. That while the worship service was on, they would not answer the door. They wouldn't answer the phone. They weren't going to use that time to cook breakfast or to clean the house. They were in worship. Well, every Sunday they were doing that. They loved their church family so much. They were such kind and faithful people. They loved one another. 
Bill was always doting on Gracie and taking care of her. Gracie was always looking out for Bill and loving on him, wanting to make sure that he was physically healthy and well. You see, she knew that Bill had a sweet tooth. He loved candy and ice cream and desserts, and she wanted to make sure that he was going to be okay, so she didn't allow any sweets in the house. She knew that he'd eat them all. One day, Bill was out walking around the neighborhood. He was walking up and down the block, and one of his neighbors was out in the garage working. He went to go and visit with the neighbor, and they were standing there talking, and Bill looked over, and he saw an empty bucket sitting in the garage, and he said, would it be all right if I kept a couple of candy bars here in this bucket? <laughs> the neighbor didn't realize what was really going on, and so he said, sure, that'd be fine. Bill kept some candy there. He walked up and down the street a little bit further, a couple houses down, and saw another neighbor out in his garage. He started to visit with him. He saw, I see that you've got a freezer out here in your garage. Would it be all right if I kept a pint of ice cream out here? Before long, Bill had candy and ice cream and desserts in every garage up and down his block. And every night after dinner was over, they would clear the table, they'd do the dishes, and then Bill would turn to Gracie and say, you know, I think I'm going to go for a walk. And he'd go up and down the block having his desserts and his ice cream. They were such fun people, but they always lived out of the spirit of wanting to bless life, wanting to make a difference in the world. And I think that really came from Bill's experience earlier in his life. You see, Bill was a veteran from World War II. He had fought in World War II. He had been a part of the 394th Battalion of the Army Air Corps. He had flown there as a, a part of the 5th Bomb Group, flying a B-24 bomber. As a first lieutenant at 21 years old, he was the oldest one in his battalion. All the others in his flight crew looked up to him as the father figure of their group. And at just 21 years old, Bill took that very seriously. He made a commitment that he was going to do everything in his power to bring his men back home safely. Throughout the war, he and his crew would fly in 36 different missions in the South Pacific, flying into enemy territory, dangerous missions, and by the end of the war, Bill brought every single man and his crew back home safely to their families. You can imagine that going through the things that they experienced brought together this special bond between them. And over the years, the, the men and his crew would keep in touch with each other, writing letters and making phone calls, going to reunions together. Over the years, they would continue to keep in touch until eventually they got older and health started to deteriorate. And finally, it was the first one of their crew that passed away. And when he did, Bill sat down to write a letter to his family. He wrote a letter to them and he wanted to say, I just want to tell you how courageous he was, how brave he was, the things that I saw in him and, and how he lived such a life of service and how his life made a difference to so many. And over the years, as men and his crew would pass away, Bill would do that for every single one of them, writing a letter to their families. Until eventually, Bill was the only one left. It was almost like he had made this commitment to look out for his men until the very end. And he had honored that commitment until he was the only one left. Through his life experiences, Bill understood that freedom isn't free. It requires those who are willing to sacrifice. Those who are willing to look for the good of all, not just for themselves. It requires those who are willing to look beyond themselves to, 
to seek the good for the world. And that's exactly how Bill and Gracie lived their lives. Bill and Gracie would meet later in life. They never did have children of their own, didn't have much family to speak of. And as they started to get older, they thought about what kind of legacy they wanted to leave behind in this world. And out of this spirit of wanting to bless life and do good for others, Bill and Gracie made a commitment that they were going to leave their entire estate to their church family because they wanted to be a blessing. And I can't tell you how much their gift has blessed our family of faith and every single one of us. Their gift has enabled so many projects to happen at our facilities here at our downtown campus, up at our Edmond campus. Their gift has helped to bless the lives of countless children and youth and adults. Their gift has made possible for us to start new missions and ministries to go out into the world to serve our community. Their gift has made such an incredible difference and will for years to come because they understood that freedom isn't free. And how we use our freedom matters. Bill and Gracie wanted to use their freedom to bless life, to make sacrifices that would bring about good in this world. We understand through our faith in Christ that the freedom that Christ came to bring us wasn't free either. And how we use that freedom that we have through our faith matters. We have the opportunity to use our freedom, the liberation that Christ came to bring us, to bless life, to do good, to make a difference for the good of all. We have been given certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and third, the pursuit of happiness. Now sometimes when we talk about the pursuit of happiness, the phrase happiness is a word that we tend to shy away from in our Christian theology. Especially for the last century or so, the idea of happiness often gets associated with having all the things that we want in life or having all of our temporal circumstances be everything that we would want them to be. And so we don't like to talk about happiness when it comes to our faith. We'd rather talk about deeper concepts like joy. But that really is a relatively new way of thinking about happiness. When you look back through the centuries of Christian theology, theologians for centuries talked about happiness as this ideal, this thing that we ought to pursue in our Christian walk. Then when you look back to John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, John Wesley talked about happiness as one of those things that is a goal of the Christian life. But it really comes back to his understanding of happiness. You see, John Wesley equated happiness with holiness. And for John Wesley, holiness was not about having this holier-than-thou attitude, this idea that we're better than others, No, holiness was about having God's heart within our heart. Holiness is about loving God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. And John Wesley said that ought to be a goal of our life as Christians, to love God and to love our neighbor. And for John Wesley, that's what happiness was all about. It's not about everything being perfect in our lives or having everything that we could ever want. It's about loving God and loving our neighbor. And we recognize that whether it's from our Declaration of Independence or from our faith, we are never guaranteed that we will have happiness or holiness. We're only guaranteed the right to pursue happiness and holiness. To pursue happiness is a daily decision that you and I make. 
to pursue a relationship with God, to love God, and to love our neighbors. That's a choice that you and I get to be intentional about making each and every day. Through our daily devotional times, through participating in small groups and Sunday school classes and Bible studies, we choose to be intentional about growing in our faith, growing more in love with God, pursuing happiness. You know, what I find is that so often in life, we wait until we're in those deep, dark valleys of life to try to look for God. Or sometimes we wait until those mountaintop experiences come along when we feel so close to God. The reality of life is that most of our time is not spent in the deep, dark valleys or on the mountaintops. The majority of our time in life is spent somewhere in between there. And it's how we choose to use those in-between times, the decisions that we make on a daily basis, that help us to pursue happiness and holiness. You know, when I went to seminary, I, I went up to uh, Evanston, Illinois. It's a suburb just north of Chicago. I went to seminary up there and I moved into an apartment that was owned by the seminary. It was a three-story building. The second and third floors were apartments. And the, the first floor was just these shops that all faced the, the street. There was a dry cleaners there and a, some restaurants. And, and there was a little coffee shop that was there right below my apartment. Well, down in the, the window of this coffee shop when I moved in, I saw a sign that was there. It said, now hiring. Well, it was right below my apartment. I was going to grad school and I thought having a little extra money might be nice. I was looking for something to do to fill my time anyway. I was in a new city. I didn't really know many people there. And it was really convenient. I just had to walk downstairs and I was at work. So I thought this is a pretty good deal. So I went down and I applied for a job. The owner called me in for an interview. I went out, went down and visited with him and we had a great time visiting. It turned out that he was also an alumni of the seminary that I was going to. He was pastoring a Korean church there in Chicago, and he was a great guy. He started this coffee shop because he wanted it to be a mission opportunity. He was going to use the proceeds from this little coffee shop to, to turn around and give them to good causes in the community and to try to bless the lives of others. And so I went and we were visiting about seminary and about ministry and church and all kinds of different things. We just had a great time talking to each other. It finally came to the end of the interview whenever he asked me, and he said, so tell me, what kind of coffee do you like to drink? I finally had to admit to him that up until that point in my life, I didn't drink coffee. I didn't even like coffee. I was only applying for a job there because I needed the money and I just had to walk downstairs and be at work and I thought this was a great deal. We both laughed about it and he said, well, I'm glad I waited till the end of the interview to ask you because I do like you and I want to hire you, but you got to learn to drink coffee if you're going to work here. So, well, that's fair. I started working there and I did learn to drink coffee and now I love coffee. I drink it every day. But I started working there and I learned some things about working in a coffee shop. I learned that, of course, as you can imagine, that there's certain busy times. The morning commute time, when everybody's on their way to work or on their way to class, that's the time that everybody's stopping by to get their cup of coffee. Well, at this particular coffee shop I worked at, we made all just kind of artisan-type coffees. Everything was done individually. We didn't have some big pot of coffee that we brewed that we were just pouring lots of cups and getting people in and out the door. Every cup of coffee was made individually by the pour-over method of making coffee. And so every cup of coffee took about three to five minutes to make. So during that morning rush time, if I was there by myself, people would come in and they would order their coffee. 
And it was so specially done that we would measure out the amount of beans that were needed to make that cup of coffee based on the size of coffee that they ordered. And so it could really take some time. So if you started getting a rush coming in, if I wasn't prepared and I started waiting until that moment to measure out the beans, to grind them, then to start making the coffee, things would get really backed up. People would get frustrated. We would lose business. You know, what I learned is that we had these little tin cans there and that when it wasn't a rush time, you had all these other times throughout the day that were just sort of these in-between times where people would kind of filter in and out of the coffee shop. And those were the times that we would use to measure out all the coffee beans into these little tin cans so that when people came in and they ordered their coffee based on what size they ordered, I would just grab the appropriate can, put it in the grinder, and start to make their coffee for them. Now, what I found at the coffee shop is that if I didn't use those other moments to be prepared, then when the rush came, I would be in a world of trouble. What I have found is that that's so much of life. Most of life isn't spent on the mountaintops or in the dark valleys. Most of life is spent somewhere in between. And it's what we do to pursue happiness, holiness, in those in-between moments. It's what we do in those times to prepare our heart and our soul, our relationship with God, that makes all the difference. So that when the rush of life comes, we're prepared for it. We have that faith foundation that will strengthen us and sustain us for whatever comes our way in life. Choosing to pursue happiness is a daily decision that you and I make to grow in our faith, to grow in our relationship with God, to love God with all of our heart, our soul, our strength, and our mind, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. When you and I choose to pursue happiness on a daily basis, that's what allows us to be transformed by the gift of God's grace so that we can be a reflection of God's love in the world around us. We're able to use that as an opportunity to be a blessing. We have been set free by Christ so that we can experience the abundant life, the life that leads to more life. We have been given liberty through our relationship with Christ so that we can use that freedom as an opportunity to be a blessing in the world. And it's by the gift of God's grace that we're able to pursue happiness, holiness. We can pursue loving God and loving our neighbor every single day. On this 4th of July, we remember that first and foremost, we are followers of Christ who happen to live in America, not the other way around. And it's through the lens of our faith that we are reminded that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers.
Amen.